Pastor Linda mentioned next week, Mother's Day. Yes. How many moms are in the house? We could start getting ready this week, right, to celebrate Mother's Day. Make those reservations in the restaurant. Dads, if you don't, husbands, if you don't want to, you know, have to cook at home, get those reservations. How many love going out to eat? How many love going to a restaurant? Yes? No? Yeah? How many are with us today? Check your pulse. We got pulses in this room today? You guys, you all right? Okay. Right. I love going to restaurants. I love walking in there. The table is is prepared. The menu is ready, right? Then comes the waiter. The waiter is there to wait on you, the waitress to wait on you, whatever it is that you need. The Bible says that the Lord has prepared a table for us. Amen? But that does not mean that the Lord is our heavenly waiter. I love going to a restaurant because you have that waiter who's going to wait on you and take care of all of your needs and make you don't even have to think about that waiter until you need something, right? The Lord is not our heavenly waiter, even though he has prepared a table before us. Too many today treat God like he's a waiter in a restaurant, right? We enjoy his blessings. We enjoy that table that he has prepared before us, even in the presence of our enemies. But we only acknowledge him when we need something. We see all the blessings, but we don't really acknowledge him. So until we need something, then we're quick to put up our hand and say, hey, Lord, I need some help over here. Can you fill, can you fill my cup? Can you provide me with more bread? Why is my order taking so long, right? I want us to understand this morning that accepting Christ is not inviting Jesus into our lives to take, to take his place as our heavenly waiter to just meet our needs or wait on us for our, our beck and call. No, accepting Christ is repenting of our sins and putting him at, as, and in that rightful place as Lord over our lives. Everybody say rightful place. That's what accepting Christ is all about. And that's what I want to talk about in these next few moments, putting God in his rightful place in our lives. And I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to be reading there, starting in verse 1, that gives us a great example of what it means for us to come to God and pray put him in the rightful place in our lives. It says here in 1 Samuel 7, 1, Then the men of kajath came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in kajath a long time. It was there 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So before we go too deep into this text, we need to understand the context here and a little bit of the history and, and what this object is called the Ark of the Lord. So God made a covenant with his people, the children of Israel, through his servant Moses, and he promised blessings upon them if they would obey his laws 
but also warned of punishment if they would disobey his laws. And as a sign of this covenant between God and Israel, he had the Israels construct this box or this chest made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold in which to place the the tablet of stones containing the Ten Commandments and a jar full of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. And this box, this chest, was called the Ark of the Covenant, meaning the covenant between God and His people. And it was to be kept in the tabernacle, which was another uh, a station that God told the people to develop that would house the Ark of the Covenant And this ark would be a symbol of God's presence, his tangible presence among the people of Israel who were in covenant relationship with him. And in all of their history and all of their culture, the ark was the most sacred, the most important artifact of the Jews because it was a sign to Israel that God was in their midst and that he would be merciful to them, and that he would bless them as long as they kept the laws of his word of that covenant. Now, in time, Israel became presumptuous with the presence of God. And they treated the ark like it was like a magic charm, like a talisman that they could try to use to conjure up victories for themselves. And this was especially true in this particular battle that occurred with the Philistines. They took this ark, they brought it out of the tabernacle, they brought it onto the battlefield as though it would be some sort of a talisman in their battle, and that magically, because they brought the ark there, they would be able to defeat their, their enemy. Essentially, they misused the ark. They abused the ark to serve their own will without any concern or regard for the will or the plan of God. And so God allowed the ark, the symbol of his presence, to be stolen away from Israel by their enemy, the Philistines. And you can read in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 in this book here how God allowed that to happen because Israel abused the presence or the ark, and then how God also used that occasion to punish the Philistines with disease, and eventually, through that punishment that he brought upon the Philistines, to have the ark returned to Israel again. How many are tracking with me this morning? Okay, need to understand a little history, a little culture to really get the impact of what this story is. So basically, as you read that story leading up to chapter 7, the Philistines captured the ark of God from the Israelites. They took the ark of God and they put it in the temple of their God, who was named Dagon. But the glory of God, how many know that the glory of God is greater than any idol or any false god of this world, right? The glory of God upon the ark literally destroyed their idol, this idol of Dagon, and, and, and then also brought a plague upon the Philistines. And the Bible says that God brought tumors upon them. And the King James Version uses the word emeralds, which is a word for hemorrhoids. It's kind of humorous if you think of it. That's how God punished the Philistines. He brought hemorrhoids upon them. 
I know it sounds a little crass, but you know, it's what the word says. So I'm just giving you the word. And, and the Philistines, they couldn't bear it any longer. And so they sent the ark back to the Israelites, which is where we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, where it says that the men of Kerjath-Jerim, they discover the ark now being returned to them from the Philistines. So they took the ark of the Lord and they brought it into the house of Abinadab. So the point here that I want us to start out with is this. God made himself available again to the people of Israel. The ark had returned to Israel, but get this, it had not been returned to its rightful place. God made it clear that the ark of the covenant should have been housed in the tabernacle, in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. It was to be cared for by the priest. It was to be surrounded by these sacred articles, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, used every year in the Day of Atonement. But instead, when Israel received the presence of God into their lives again, instead of returning it to its rightful place, it sat in some guy's house named Abinadab in obscurity, forgotten, ignored, for 20 years, 20 years. And the result of this was verse 2. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What does that mean? It means that even though God makes himself available to us, if we do not put him in the proper place in our lives, we will still be miserable and defeated. This is what the cross is all about. The cross of Calvary is God making himself available to you and me, to all humanity. Even though we are broken and messed up, even though we are sinners, the cross is God's way of reaching out to us, offering his love to us. But here's the thing. We need to respond to that offer in the appropriate manner and put God in his rightful place in our lives. Just because you go to church or just because you come from a family that knows God or you're married to a wife or a husband that knows God does not mean that you are right with God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Each one of us must make a decision personally to put God in his rightful place in our lives. Your parents who raised you can't do it for you. Your wife and her faith can't do it for you. Your husband and his sincerity can't do it for you. Each one of us must move God to that rightful place of authority and lordship over our lives. And until we do that, we will always be lamenting. Things will always be off in our lives. We can see this lamenting in the human condition today. How twisted, how broken, how messed up we are. I mean, you can see it all over humanity. 
Even though God has made himself available to all of mankind. Ten minutes on, on social media and you'll see it. The, the, the attacking, the vitriol, the, the toxic self-exaltation, the perversion, the, the confusion, the delusion, the corruption that is out there in humanity. There is a lamenting in the human soul that we are trying to satisfy with another pill, with another sexual encounter, with another new cause. A, a lamenting in the human soul that can only be satisfied by connecting to our Creator. And listen, there's only one way to connect with our Creator, and it's not on our terms. It's by putting Him in His rightful place in our lives. Calvary makes Him available to us. Calvary offers His love to us. But He only comes into our lives one way. And it's not sitting in the back seat of our car. It's not in the passenger seat. It's when we move out of the driver's seat and we say, Jesus, say it with me, take the wheel. <laughs> now, how do we do that? Well, this is where Samuel enters the story in verse 3. After we read that Israel's lamenting after the Lord, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord, this is what he's saying, if you're serious, everybody say, if you're serious, if you're serious, God's made himself available, and you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then, he says, put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel's saying there's a reason why you're always defeated. There's a reason why the enemy is able to attack you and overwhelm you. There's a reason why there's no victory, that as soon as you get not as soon as you get up, you get knocked down again. There's a reason why there's so much misery and defeat and suffering and lamenting in your life. He's saying you need to return to the Lord and put God in his rightful place over your lives. First he says this, put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you. So Ashtoreth was the consort to Baal, which was the, the main deity in the pagan religion there. Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. And living in an agricultural society like that, those people, the Israelites, they lived and died by fertile crops and fertile livestock and even fertile wives. They would worship the goddess of Ashtoreth in hopes that it would rain, that this goddess would cause their cows, their livestock to be healthy, that their wives would bear sons and daughters in, in health and strength. And so what they would do is they would, they would chop down trees, but they would leave the trunk of the tree standing to a certain height. And then they would carve the image of this ashtoreth into these tree trunks that were standing. And they would regularly bow down 
to this Ashtoreth, as they would go out on the day, day by day into the fields to work or to be with their livestock or whatever they're doing, they would daily go past the tree trunk with the carving in it, and they would pay homage to this Ashtoreth. And everyone was doing it. It was, it, was, it was the norm of the culture there. You could walk throughout the land. You would see these groves, these high places on hills, right, with these standing tree trunks and these images carved into them, the image of Ashtoreth. And I like how specific Samuel gets here. He doesn't just generalize it. He doesn't just say, you know, those things that you're worshiping, those things that are you're exalting in your life above God. No, he gets right into where they're living. He gets right into the, 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 the specific aspects of the culture that have made their way into the lives of the Israelites, the way that they have embraced the God of the world and made it their own, made it their own norm for their own lives and their own families, like nothing at all was wrong. Samuel goes right after that, and he says, if you're serious about coming to God, you got to deal with that Ashtoreth. you got to deal with that Ashtoreth that's sitting right in the middle of your crop of corn. You got to deal with that Ashtoreth that's standing in your backyard. You got to deal with that Ashtoreth that you pass by every day and you pay homage to and, and you drop that little offering of grain before every day. I mean, he gets right, he gets right into it. That, that, that would be like if Samuel was with us today. I mean, he'd get right into the things we were watching on, on television. He'd get right into the places that we're visiting on the internet. He'd get right into the, the, the things that we do at work, in the workplace, and the people that we're hanging out with, and the mentality, and the attitude. I mean, he'd get right into that stuff. How many understand what I'm talking about? Yes? Amen? Right? Ashtoreth represents those things in our culture that we have allowed into our lives that we have exalted above the primacy of Christ. Other things that have preeminence, other things that have become a priority and that we give preference to over Christ in our lives. Things that we have erected, that we have carved into our lives, that we have made a place for, should have been cut down. The stump should have been pulled out of the ground, should have been uprooted and removed, but yet we have allowed a place for them. We've made a provision. We've given you know, permission for those things to remain, and in fact, we return to them and carve them out and sharpen them up and make them, give them a place of prominence in our lives. The Israelites, here's the thing, the Israelites had the ark they had the ark. It was right there at the house of Abinadab. They had the ark. God had made himself available to them. But for 20 years, they had put more importance into the tree trunk sitting over their crop than they did in the ark of the covenant that was available to them. And then he says, prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. Prepare your hearts. Everybody say prepare. prepare. Prepare your hearts. In other words, do not be reactive, be proactive. Be intentional. Be anticipatory. See, serving God is not something we do because it happens to fit into our schedule if we're not too busy or we have something else going on. Prepare your hearts means 
Make preparation in your life. Make space in your schedule. Position yourself and ready yourself to serve the Lord. Now we know what it means to prepare our hearts. Last uh, two weeks ago, we had our, our summit here. We had 400 people, 400 leaders come from churches around uh, our area to gather here. And um, we had our general superintendent who was with us as well. And it was for our pastoral team, for our leaders, it was kind of a big deal for us. It's very important to us, right? So there was what? A lot of preparation, right? Amen? A lot of preparation. A lot of preparation. It's not something where you just send out an invitation, whoever shows up, oh yeah, if we, you know, if I got time, right? If we got time, Pastor, we'll happen to show up on Saturday and, you know. No, no, no. We, we prepared ourselves knowing what we wanted to accomplish. We prepared ourselves. We had a goal in mind. And we aligned our conduct accordingly, our behavior, our attitude, our mindset accordingly. Prepare ourselves. Ever have someone special come to your home? We just had visitors in our home. My, my, sisters, uh, my, my, my wife's sisters were up uh, visiting with their husbands. They've been staying at our home for the past couple days. And so, you know, my in-laws were there. So it was a lot of preparation. <laughs> Love my in-laws. You guys are awesome. Right? A lot of pre- so if you have visitors coming to your home, there's a lot of, you get your mind ready, right? You're not just reacting to something, you're proactive, right? To prepare your heart to seek the Lord means you have established your priorities ahead of time. You have aligned yourself with the will of God for your life ahead of time, and you have prepared yourself accordingly. Because understand something, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, meaning our hearts do not naturally want to seek the Lord. Our hearts do not want to worship the Lord. Our hearts don't even want to get up early on a Sunday morning, get the kids up, put them in the car, drive them down the road and get here to church. Our hearts don't want to do that. If you left it up to your heart, you wouldn't be here today. How many know what I'm talking about? Right? Amen? You ever hear somebody say, oh, I don't feel like going to church. Well, of course you don't feel. Of course you don't feel like. You think I feel like going to church all the time? And I'm the pastor. Of course you don't. That's the heart. That is deceitful above all things. And desperate. Stop listening to your heart. Don't follow your heart. We just tell somebody that? Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. That's the worst advice that you can get from somebody. Your heart will take you down a dark, dark path. And that's why Samuel says, you've got to prepare your heart. Don't follow your heart. You've got to fix your heart. You've got to get in there and you've got to tool your heart and focus your heart. And you've got to tell your heart what your heart needs to do. Don't listen to your heart. Your heart will lead you astray. Amen? Prepare your heart to seek the Lord. And then this is what the Israelites did. Verse 4, it says there, so, so the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. So this is what we call repentance. Everybody say repentance. No one can come to God 
without repentance. There is no coming to Christ without repentance. There is no forgiveness of sins without repentance. I'm concerned that today we have soft-pedaled the message of the gospel to simply make it acceptable and win crowds by talking about forgiveness, but not talking about repentance. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Acts 2.38, Peter is preaching and he says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. The Greek word is metanoeo. Metanoeo. It means to change. A change in your mind. A change in your heart. A change in your direction. In the way that you're walking. You were walking in one direction, metanoeo, I'm changing my direction, I'm going in the opposite direction. That's what repentance means. And there is no coming to Christ without a change in direction. Hello? I know this isn't new to you this morning. You've heard this before, right? Amen? A change in direction. It means that coming to Christ is not just saying a prayer. Though almost every Sunday we lead people in a prayer to receive Christ into their lives, that's not salvation. That's just a gateway. That's just a threshold. That's just a first step toward God, right? Walking down an aisle and coming to an altar, that's not salvation. Salvation is what we see happening here with Samuel. It is turning from the idols of this world and the sins that we love and making Jesus Lord of our lives. And knowing that when we make Jesus Lord of our lives, His blood cleanses us from all of our sin. Peter said, repent and be baptized. This is what water baptism is all about. It's a sign that the old man who loved the idols of this world, who walked in sin, is dead and buried, and a new man, everybody say a new man, a new man has now risen up who's going to follow Christ. This is what water baptism is all about. I used to behave a certain way, but I don't do that anymore. Let's say that together. I don't do that anymore. Come on, say it again. I don't do that anymore anymore. Have you ever had to say that to somebody? They invite you back to the bar or they want to give you something or show you something on the phone that, you know, you don't really want to see and you ever have to say to them, I don't do that anymore. Come on, say it again. I don't do that anymore. Hallelujah. Metanoeo. Repentance. Before Christ, I was a liar. Before Christ, I was a thief but I don't do that anymore. Before Christ, I was a homosexual, but I don't do that anymore. Before Christ, I was a transgender, but I don't do that anymore. Before Christ, I was a pornographer, but I don't do that anymore. Before Christ, I was a gossip. I was hateful. I was a racist. I was abusive to my wife and children. I was proud and egotistical. But now, since I have come to Christ, I have repented from that 
activity, that behavior, that conduct, that sin, and I don't do that anymore. Metanoeo, I've changed. This is salvation. It's not just saying a prayer. And there's no coming to Christ without repentance. We don't get to say, forgive me of my sins without repenting of those sins. Hello? Is anybody with me today? Or am I kind of out there on my own? I see Dave Stoughton's going like this the whole time. Awesome. Yeah? There's no forgiveness of sin without repenting from sin. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's no blotting out of the sin that we refuse to repent of. There's got to be a pulling down of the asterisks. Yes? You're getting this, right? I've been, I've been harping on this for a while, I know. There's, no, there's, there, there's got to be a pulling down of those idols in our lives. Now, let me just say this. Repentance does not mean perfection. It doesn't mean that you become perfect, okay? It's not, well, when I repent, I, I never, I'm never doing that again, okay? Repentance is the beginning of a process. Can you say, everybody say process. Repentance is the beginning of a process which we call sanctification. Sanctification is the setting apart of an individual from evil and dedicating that person unto God. It is a process. And repentance provides a mental framework to begin this process of being set free from sin. You ever made a decision to do something? Work out? Eat healthy? Anybody? Nobody. Nobody here has ever made the decision to eat healthy or to work out. <laughs> okay. Quit smoking. You ever make a decision to quit smoking? Nobody here's ever? Okay. Right? So you can make that decision to, to go to the gym, eat healthy, whatever, right? Like it's repentance. Like there's a change. Okay? I'm not going to do that anymore. But it doesn't immediately happen. Sometimes we fall back into those things. Sometimes we make mistakes. Hello? Amen? Right? Doesn't mean, doesn't mean perfection, right? But the decision that we made to repent provides a framework for the process. That even though, okay, I, 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 I ate that, that chocolate chip cookie that I shouldn't have eaten, right? But, but I, I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna, I've repented from that right? Lord, forgive me for that chocolate chip cookie. How many need to pray that today, right? <laughs> right? Or forgive me for whatever, Lord. I've repented. And so you're still engaged in that process. Even though you take a step back, you're still going to take a step forward. Yes? Amen? Okay? It is daily deciding to drive a nail into the sin of that old man. And here's the grace of God. Here's the power of the resurrection. That every time you make a decision to drive a nail into that old man, hallelujah, the power of God is present. The grace of God is there to help us get free. It's the process of sanctification. Right? 
Which brings us to verse 5. Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day, and they said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. So Samuel says, If you're serious, if you're really serious, he says, Meet me at Mizpah, and I'll pray for you. Now why didn't he just pray for him right there and be done with it? Because I think that Samuel was testing the seriousness of their hearts. He wanted there to be a follow-up to their confession. It's not enough to just make a confession. Not enough to just make a profession. There needs to be a follow-up. He says, meet me at Mizpah. And so they gathered, and it says that they drew water. There was a well there. They drew water from a well, and then they took that water, and instead of drinking it, they poured it out to the Lord. Now understand the significance of this. Water is the most important element necessary to our survivor, survival, aside from oxygen, right? Without it, we'll be dead. Without water, you're dead. Three or four days. You cannot survive without water. And this is especially true in the region where the Israelites lived. And they poured out this vital element, this water, in an act of worship to the Lord. They were fasting, and they were pouring this water out to the Lord, and they were saying to him, God, you are more important. Having your presence in our lives is more important. Your blessing in my life is more important than the very water that I need to survive. Like Job said, I have treasured his word more than my necessary food. It was an act of worship, not just words, but showing God, Lord, you're first. And notice, he didn't just say, okay, go home and pour out some water at home. You know, it's just you and Jesus. You don't have to worry about gathering together. It's interesting that there, there was the call to personal repentance. Go back to your place, chop down the asterisks. But there was also a call for them to join together for a corporate covenant of worship. A gathering together in community for the pouring out of the water. At Mizpah, their repentance was proven when they united with others who were also repenting all for the glory of God. And this is what God wants from his people. Not just for us to, you know, be on our own, sitting at our homes, pouring out water unto the Lord. He wants us to be gathering together in a community, in a faith group of people who are together saying, Lord, we repent, and we're pouring out our, worship, our water before you in an act of worship. Because God wants glory from his people. And understand something, coming to church is not just about you. Coming to worship is not just about you. I hear people say, yeah, I'm not so much into that worship stuff. I like to hang out in the lobby or I come a little late. Listen, it's, it's not whether or not you like the music. It's not whether or not you like the worship. It's not about you. We're not worshiping you. We gather together to bring songs of praise unto our God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And by you saying, well, I don't want to do that, what you're saying is, you know what? I don't think it's important to give God the glory that he deserves. I don't think it's important for me to put myself in a situation where I feel a little uncomfortable and, you know, I don't feel like being around people lifting up their hands and singing. Why not? It's all for the glory of God. Well, I feel a little uncomfortable. Too bad. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about offering a sacrifice of praise to our God and our King who has saved us and He has delivered us and He has set us free and He has given us eternal life. That's what it's about. 
People who are at home, who are joining the services virtually, God bless you. And if you can't be here, we're thankful that you take the opportunity to join us you know, by, by video. But listen, if you can get here, you need to get out of your house. You need to get in the car. You need to get the kids ready and get to the house. I said, get to the house. Well, I can worship God at home. Well, you can to a degree, but there's value in going. There's value in gathering the family up, getting them dressed. I know you got to wash the kids, feed the kids, comb their hair, do all that stuff. You got to go through all that work. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard, but there's value in that action of preparing your heart and preparing your family and getting in the car and getting in the house. What's the value? It shows God the seriousness of the priority of his presence in your life. That it's not something that you just take for granted conveniently, like the Israelites did right before they lost the ark to the Philistines. Took it for granted. Samuel was calling them to Mitzpah to say, let's show God that we're serious. Go home, cut down the asterisk, and then gather at Mizpah, and we're going to pour water out unto the Lord, and we're going to give him glory. Hallelujah. That's why we're here today. That's why we have church on Sunday morning. So we can come together to glorify our Lord. So collectively, we can pour water out to the Lord. Amen? That collectively, we can say, God, you're my number one. Lord, you're the most important thing in my... And it's not just you and Jesus. It's us. That's what communion is all about. You know, communion is not really supposed to be a private affair that we do in our homes. Communion is meant to be an act of, of the body to bring worship in communion unto the Lord. God wants us to gather together. Amen? Amen? All right, let me make this last point and then we're done. Verse 7, it says, When the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Can you connect that? And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. In other words, when you come to God, when you get serious about God, putting him first in your life. Don't think all your problems are going to go away because you actually might draw more fire from the Philistines. Verse 10 even says, as Samuel, verse 10, as Samuel was offering up burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle again. As he's offering up the offering to the Lord, the Philistines started to attack. As soon as you start to move toward God, you will encounter resistance. How many have noticed that? Anybody? Right? But don't be discouraged. Take it as a confirmation that you're moving in the right direction. Hallelujah. You're doing something right. It's proving that moving towards God is exactly where you need to be. Because the devil won't oppose you if you're moving in his direction. He's only going to be opposing him when you move away from him and towards God. That's when he brings the opposition, right? Listen, any dead fish can flow with the current. It's only a living fish that swims against the current. Tell somebody, stop flowing with the current. Or you could tell them, stop being a dead fish. I'm not telling you to say that, but you could if you wanted to. If you're not facing any resistance, any opposition, maybe it's because you're going in the flow that the enemy wants you to go in. The good news is this, verse 10. It says here, after the Philistines came to battle against Israel, that the Lord 
thundered. Let me ask the worship team to join me up here. The Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Hallelujah! We serve a God who wants to be our Ebenezer, a God who wants to help us in our times of trouble. Amen? Amen. That he is a very present help in our time. doesn't mean he's going to take all of our trouble away, but what it does mean is that God shows up in the midst of our trouble. But here's the thing. We've got to chop down those asterisks. We've got to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord and serve him only. Coming to Christ is repenting of sin and making Jesus Lord of our lives. Amen? Let's stand together. So Father, we're so thankful, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Lord, you have made a way. You have made your presence available to us through the cross. Hallelujah. The presence of God has returned. You offer your grace to us freely. I pray, God, that you'll help us to understand the weightiness of that offer. There's not something we should take presumptively. But we should understand that in saying yes to Jesus means repenting of sin and making Jesus Lord of our lives. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, come and deal with our hearts today. Holy Spirit, show us the asterisks that we have carved into our lives. Show us where we have allowed the asterisks to be rooted into the soil of our hearts. Show us, Lord, those things that need to be cut down because they're opposing your glory. Holy Spirit, deal with us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you put your hand on your heart? Would you just repeat this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I repent of sin. I repent of those things that have been exalted in my life over you. Holy Spirit, search me, speak to me, convict me, and show me those things that need to be cut down. I acknowledge that there is rebellion in my heart. I acknowledge that there are pockets of resistance in my flesh, streams of rebellion in my soul. I repent of that. I resist that. I renounce that. And I say, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Be Lord of my life. I repent of sin. And I make you Lord. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Save me. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise. Let's thank God. Hallelujah. Come on, lift up a hand to the Lord. Can you just lift a hand up to the Lord right now? Let's take a moment. Let's pour some water out. Let's pour some water out to the Lord through worship. To just say, Lord, there's nothing more important in my life than you. Jesus, you're first. Jesus, you're my first.